This morning we are continuing our study through Advent, uh, focusing in on joy and seeking to answer the question of what does the Bible say about joy? Over this last week, I had an opportunity to listen to uh, a podcast that NPR put out. It's kind of this collection of TED Talks. And it was trying to answer the question of where does joy hide? And so they had four different people from various different backgrounds get on there. And so they had a, a woman that, her, her job, I never saw this on career day, but her job is to make useless machines. And she, so she has a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. And so she makes useless machines. And so one of those that she described was a helmet you wear that has an arm that hangs off the front of it like a unicorn, and then it, it brushes your teeth. And so every dentist just knows it's a matter of time before their careers are, are absolutely worthless. When the unicorn toothbrushing helmet catches on, uh, they might as well just pack their bags and call it a day. And so she, she makes useless machines. They had a guy that, that what he talked about, he refers to himself as an umbrophile, which means a lover of the shadow. And so what he does is he spends his, his extra money, all of his extra vacation time, chasing uh, total eclipses. So he goes all over the world because he wants to see uh, another total eclipse and another total eclipse. There was a, a designer uh, an architect, and so she talked about, she found joy in, in round shapes and bright colors, and so all of her architectural designs feature those things, and she talked about how neuroscience corroborates how we respond more positively, not to angular shapes, but to, to round shapes, and so you imagine a lot of buildings that look like giant bubbles. And then there was a singer in there, and she described her lyrics and, and how she leads people to engage joy and, and to find joy in the midst of these things, and and something she said that particularly stuck with me. She said, deep within all of us, we have this impulse to seek out joy in our surroundings, and we have a reason for it. Joy isn't some superfluous extra. In essence, joy isn't unnecessary. It's directly connected to our fundamental instinct for survival. On the most basic level, the drive towards joy is the drive towards life. So they all four found joy in a variety of different things, but never once in any of these did they mention anything about even, even just kind of remote spirituality or a, a higher power, but all of them described finding joy amidst some experience, some delight, and if you'll catch this, something external to themselves. So it really left me with this understanding of, of, of where does joy come from and, and what does joy look like. This morning we're going to be in three different places. And so we're going to be in Isaiah 61, we're going to be in Luke 4, and we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with where to find those three books of the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front and that's going to help you to find those. The large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers we're going to be verses, and again, we're going to be in those three sections this morning as we drive towards answering the question of what does the Bible say about joy? The prophet Isaiah uh, lived at a really interesting time and, and to a large degree, a really dark time within the nation of Israel. And so largely what he addresses is the subject of the impending exile that the Israelites are going to face in Assyria. And so he's writing in about 700 or so BC and he's addressing these things. But when we find ourselves in Isaiah 61, the subject has changed and he's no longer addressing the content of the, uh, 
of the exile of the Israelites to Assyria, he begins to address the subject of the exile of the Judeans to Babylon. And so he moves from, uh, from Israel to Judah within the context of this. So I just want you to kind of catch the, the significance of all that he's saying. So he's writing uh, in 700 BC, so 700 years before the birth of Christ, and, and 150 or so years prior to the exile of Judah into Babylon. But as the, as the men and women of Judah find themselves in exile in Babylon, they would have reflected upon this text and it would have answered something for them of, of when do we get to go back to the land? When is God going to right these wrongs? When is he going to reestablish his reign and his rule? When is he going to bring joy back to us? When is he going to end our captivity? And then some, when uh, this picks up, we see that it describes this person who is the servant of the Lord, who's spoken about in chapter 45 and chapter 53 and so on. And listen to what he says of himself in the first three verses. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So this servant of the Lord, and who would, we would later find out is the Messiah, he describes his relationship with God, and he says this of himself, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So we know that he is set aside to do some particular work for the Lord. He is set aside and, and, and been invested by God for an express purpose. The Spirit of God is upon him. God has anointed him. God's hand of favor rests upon him for a really specific task. He says this task is to bring good news to the poor. His, his role, his title, his commission, in essence, is a proclamation of good news. So in this, we kind of hear the precursors of the gospel, which in fact is the good news. And so this is what he's supposed to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. God's anointed rests on him so that when he comes to those in captivity, what they hear from him is good news. Now, what's the best news to those in captivity? Your captivity is coming to an end. What is the best news to those who are poor? That their poverty is coming to an end. So this servant of the Lord is sent out and given a message of good news, which will radically upend the difficult situations of all those he encounters on the basis of his anointing, on the basis of who he is. He says, he sent me out to bring good news to the poor. And so you're there in Babylon, you are exiled, you remember or you've been told what your homeland is like, and you hear the word of the Lord come through his servant. And you're hungry for good news. And you're hungry for poverty to know an end. And you're hungry for grief to know an end. And then you hear him go on. He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And we think about all the various ways they might have experienced brokenheartedness fractured relationships this this forced dislocation they've been robbed they've been taken from their land they've been delivered to a new land and they've been asked to serve a new leader he says this is what he's here to do that he's going to come and he's going to invest himself into the lives of those who are described as brokenhearted and we hear this and we can find in our own lives in our own disappointments a need for a savior who would come and meet us at the point of addressing our broken hearts in the me and and and, and in the midst of facing our difficulties all of us face difficulties 
Some of us seem to be relatively oblivious to the difficulties we face. Some of us are facing difficulties on the basis of our actions, but difficulties are normative to the human experience. And what we read is there is this servant coming to deliver all those who experience brokenheartedness. And they're sitting in captivity, and they're longing, and they're waiting. They want to have somebody bind up their heart. They want to have somebody close to them who knows them, who knows their hurts, doesn't have to ask, but comes near to them and fits all the broken pieces back together again and says, here is what your heart should look like. It has been made new. It has been reestablished. This good news that he's going to come in is liberty to the captives. It is the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The servant's going to come in and he's going to radically up in governmental authorities. He's going to set free those who have been imprisoned. He's going to destroy the establishment. He's going to set in a system of right justice. He's going to proclaim, verse 2, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Some of us face difficulty through oppression. Some of us face difficulty just through the ordinary mundane nature of life. And as they would have considered the rule and reign of the Babylonians, they would have known and would have seen them as being oppressors. They would have seen them as being unjust, and they would have experienced this feeling of oppressiveness. They would have experienced this feeling of having missed out and having longed for God's justice to be poured out on those who are keeping them in captivity. And this is what the servant of the Lord says. He said, I'm going to proclaim good news to you. I'm going to proclaim God's favor to you. God's favor would stand in and would eradicate the oppressiveness of the Babylonians. It would eradicate these difficulties in their lives, in their minds. And then they had this idea of the vengeance of our God. They say, not only is he going to come in and set us free, but he's going to come in and he's going to pour out his wrath on those who have imprisoned us. He's going he's to bring to those who have brought difficulty to us, he's going to bring to them difficulty in kind. This God is going to return to them the displeasure, uh, his displeasure on the basis of the ways he has, they have treated us. But in addition to this, he's going to comfort all those who mourn. And we've, most of us, experienced terrific cause for sadness and reasons for mourning. We've lost family members. We've lost children. We've lost friends. We've lost coworkers. We're just, in some sense, overcome with sadness. Every time we come to Christmas, we remember those we've lost the year prior. Every time we come to some significant holiday, we recall in our minds those who are no longer there to celebrate alongside of us. And this is what the servant of the Lord is going to do. He's going to bring good news to those who mourn. And what a hope. What a sustaining promise that they have in the midst of their captivity that the Lord's servant is come, that he is going to bring an end to their mourning, that he himself will be their comfort, that he himself will give them his presence, and his presence is hope. He's going to grant to all those who mourn and die to give them a beautiful headdress instead of, an a- instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
the end goal that this servant of the Lord is coming to is that God would be praised on the basis of his investment of the people. And so he describes it in terms that they would rightly understand. And so if somebody was overcome with sadness, and so you've experienced a terrific amount of difficulty and, and, and suffered loss over the course of your life, you want other people to know about it. So you would adorn yourself, cover yourself with ashes. So when somebody walks up, they'd say, oh, Matt, I, I, I can see that you're quite sad. You've got the ashen uniform on. And then they enc- encounter his wife, Amy, and so she's got this wonderful headdress. And so it just kind of reminds me of all this kind of fruit sacked up on top of her head. I don't know what a headdress looks like in your mind. But so they see her walking along, and they say, well, you look like you've got the headdress of gladness. That's delightful. Can I have a banana? Yuck. And so they go on, and so they're wearing an, uh, an outfit that depicts the interior quality of what they are experiencing. And this is what God says. I'm going to come in and fundamentally change your clothing of sadness and exchange it for clothing of righteousness, clothing of gladness. And to give you the oil of gladness instead of the garments of mourning. This is what the servant of the Lord, this is what their hope and their expectation was bound up in. So as you read through Isaiah 61, you you find out that he's going to rebuild the land. You read that he's going to bring uh, men and women, foreigners, back to the land, that they're going to dwell in harmony. And all of this harmony would point to God's goodness, would point to his investment in them. We read of God's character in verse 8, that I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God is going to come into this Uh, suffering. He's going to come into this oppression and he's going to right all the wrongs of their land. The day of justice is coming for them. And then we get into verse 10, and on the basis of all these things, we read of the rejoicing of the land and the rejoicing of the people. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Where is their joy found? Their joy is found in God. Where is our joy to be found? Our joy is only ever to be found in the Lord. There's so many things in your life that will lead you to experience of gladness, experience of, experiences of happiness, but joy which is unassailable, joy which is unalterable, joy which is indefatigable, joy which it cannot be made tired is only ever found in our God. Kind of taking from this idea of Isaiah 61, we encounter Christ's use of this passage in Luke 4. In Luke 4. Luke 4. Jesus has has already been traveling around and performing miracles and, and people knew his name and they knew the terrific things that he had accomplished for his kingdom and in the world. But then in Luke 4 and verse 16, Jesus comes home. He comes back to Nazareth. I want you to understand, this is 700 years after Isaiah wrote wrote Isaiah 61. So for 700 years, they've been waiting. 700 years, they've been expecting. For 700 years, there's been this sense of things have gotten some better. We've come back into the land. But still now, we face a different kind of oppression. We face Roman oppression. So still there's this sense of when is the deliverer going to arrive? When are we going to reach the end of mourning? When are we going to reach the end of wearing ash? When are we going to reach the end of oppression? Verse 16 says, 
And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, so where he had been raised. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So imagine this open room, you've got an elevated platform, and and so the scroll would be kept there in a chest, and so Jesus walks up, and they take the scroll out, and they hand Jesus the scroll, and so he's standing to read. You'd stand to read, you'd sit to preach. He stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. So he unrolls the scroll, he's reading down, he's reading down, he's reading down, and he encounters it. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 700 years in the making. 700 years of anticipation. 700 years. Jesus walks up and he reads. So he takes a scroll, he rolls it up, He gets it back to the attendant. He goes back to the bench and he sits down. And everybody in there is just looking at him. And Jesus begins to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. His servant was there. 700 years in the making, 20 or 30 seconds in a reading and Jesus brings all the expectation of hundreds of years to bear on them in that moment. Consider the weight of this. The weight of his promise and what he has said that he's going to proclaim good news that he's going to set the prisoners free, that the blind will receive sight, that he's going to bring liberty to those who are oppressed. And in that moment, they all think of, this is my captivity. In that moment, they all think, then this is my blindness. In that moment, they all think, and this is my poverty. And here is the one who said, he's here to fulfill it. And they're amazed. They look at Jesus and they are amazed, they are captivated that this one who they knew would be the one to set them free. And so their first response is to marvel at him, to look at him in in this sense of could it be, in this bewildering understanding of what in the world is going on. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus doesn't say it will be, he says it is. The servant of the Lord is there They begin to ask these questions. They say, is this not Joseph's son? In essence, you you can kind of hear the the antagonism in this question, right? Like, this this guy? Like, we know him. We totally remember him. We were at his bar mitzvah. Oh, my goodness, do you remember how he danced? Oh, my goodness, this is his son. In essence, saying, without saying, it could not be the deliverer. Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing how far they are from God, begins to lead them in this understanding. He says, doubtless you'll quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself what you have heard. What what, what we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And in essence, Jesus says, listen, 
You want to see the signs and the miracles. You want to see this truth validated. But he wants them to understand why they can't, and the reason they can't experience this has nothing to do with Jesus' inability. It has everything to do with their refusal to believe. Jesus says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but I tell you in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in the, in the years for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. What's Jesus' point? Jesus brings up 1 Kings 17 and, and, and this, this amazing work that Elijah did, not among someone of Jewish descent, but among a Gentile. And so in essence, Jesus says, look, there were lots of people suffering and, and all of Israel was suffering, but when God deemed to step into time and to invest himself in the person of a prophet, who did he go to and who did he bring healing to? He did it to someone you consider worthless not worthy to be in the synagogue, not worthy to receive the grace of the Lord. He goes on, he says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So again, now he goes to 2 Kings in verse 5, and again he describes someone who is a Gentile, somebody they would say is unclean, unworthy, can't come in here, that is beyond the pale, beyond the redemption, and isn't worthy of God's favor. So he gives them two cases of somebody they would say this person that we would say today is unworthy unacceptable of receiving god's favor and this is who god chose to invest himself in so they hear this they hear jesus bring these two things up and they become incensed and they try to kill him jesus gives us this beautiful picture that joy is found in him Joy is found in his coming, and joy is found in the deliverance that God brings through Jesus. So we begin to think today, kind of like, okay, we understand this, so that in Isaiah 61, God gives this picture of joy that is coming, it's coming at the hands of the deliverer, but what does joy look like for us today? Where do we experience joy? Where do we find joy? And I find that the book of First Peter is incredibly contemporary to our setting because Peter writes to a group of people who have become dislocated, or rather, they've come to an understanding that to be in Christ is to accept dislocation from the world. When we are allied with Jesus, we are at war with the world. When we are found to be in Jesus, we have this terrific understanding that we are not at home here. That our ultimate sense of citizenship and allegiance isn't to a country, a president, a party, but it is to a king, Jesus, who sits and rules rightly on his throne. And he and he alone is worthy of all praise, and he and he alone can give to us joy and joy unending. So this is to why he writes to them, and this is why it's so helpful for us to see this. So in 1 Peter 3, he writes to this group of sojourning pilgrims and exiles and says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. In essence, he says, praise God because he has raised you from the dead and raising Christ from the dead. You have a living, vivified hope. 
Today, where you sit in your experience, if you are a follower of Jesus, your hope is not paltry. Your hope is not weak. Your hope, listen to this, is not on the basis of you being an optimistic person. Praise God, I'm a pessimist. Quasi-pessimist. Recovering some days. He says he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where does our living hope reside? Our living hope resides and is found and is created through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. In essence, on the basis of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we're able to have hope. And a hope that's producing life in us, a hope that's making us joyous, a hope that is helping us to stand, a hope that helps us to face the onslaught and the arrows of a life lived amidst a world that's not our home. We have a living hope. He says this living hope is to an inheritance, there's three things, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I've only been given a couple of things in in inheritance. One was an awkward gift. My grandfather was still alive, and he gave me these dueling pistols that all of my cousins and my brother had drooled over since we could, any of us had memory. And so he called me. He said, Matthew, come with me into the bedroom. So I go in there, and I assume I'm about to get a piece of his mind. And instead, I walk out with this chest with these amazing dueling pistols that were always on a shelf, never allowed to touch, and my cousins always wanted, and now I was the proud owner of. It's this amazing inheritance. But it's going to fail. It's going to rust. It's going to decay. It's going to disappear. It's going to come to nothing. But he describes the inheritance that we have. Friends, if you are in Jesus... You have the most amazing inheritance awaiting you. He says it's imperishable. It does not die. It does not decay. He says that it is undefiled. It is kept pure and unsullied for you. It is kept unvarnished, untarnished for you. He says that it is unfading. Imagine the most beautiful flower you've ever seen and recognize that it's going to wilt, it's going to fade, and its beauty will one day be gone. But your inheritance is not this way. And he has this terrific message for us. He tells us that this inheritance that we've received isn't for, our, isn't for us to keep safe, that this inheritance that is waiting for us is kept in heaven, safe for us and safe from us, and safe from our enemies, and safe from all those who would seek to damage it, seek to destroy it. And then he turns and he says, and you begin to wonder about you. It's not just your inheritance that's kept safe. He is keeping you safe as well. Because he goes on, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's as if God says that in salvation, and salvation is given you because Christ has been raised from the dead, and you've gotten this salvation because you've committed yourself to Jesus through this faith tether. You have believed in him, and through him you have an inheritance that nothing can ever happen to. And then you look at your life, and you say, look at the mess I make it. Look at the decisions I engage in. Look at, look at all the immorality that I do. Look at the stain of everybody around me, and you're telling me I'm safe. He says, yes, you're safe. And you say, how can I be safe? He says, because I'm guarding you. God is keeping you safe. 
So we remember our failures. Our failures are right here. And our failures obscure or want to obscure our view of the glorious God who's kept you safe. Our failures want to obscure the glorious Jesus who died to make you whole. Our failures want to obscure our view of the inheritance which is imperishable and defiled and unfading. Our failures want to obscure the glory of God. And they can't. They can't. They so desperately want to, and the enemy tells you they can, and the enemy tells you he can take your eye off of Christ, but he fails. And on the basis of this, he calls us to a wonderful remembrance. He says, in this you rejoice. There is cause for rejoicing. There's cause to be glad amidst sorrow. There's cause to be overcome in our mourning with gladness, not on the basis that all these things are false or trivial, but on the basis of the goodness of our God. He says, in this you rejoice. Notice God doesn't say, on the basis of your testimony, on the goodness of your baptism, on the gloriousness of your family, on the short-lived nature of the suffering, this you rejoice. He says, your rejoicing is found in the goodness of God, what he's done for you through Jesus, the surefire promise of your inheritance, and the surefire promise that he is helping you to persevere over the course of your life. In this you rejoice. God is not blind to our sorrows. He's not blind to our difficulties. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. All the various trials that we go through, First Peter is writing and telling us, these are revealing the tested genuineness of our faith. They are not producing your faith. They're merely awakening you to the reality of the faith that God has entrusted to you in Jesus. So every time we go through a difficulty, we are reminded of the goodness of the faith that God has given us. We are reminded of our weakness. We are reminded of our failures. And we are repeatedly told of his goodness. And all these things are found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus. So at the end of all things, when Jesus returns, we will stand there not on the basis of having found our joy in our health, which is failing. At the end of all things, when Christ comes back, we won't have been joyous because of our health. We won't have been joyous based upon the opinions of others because people so highly regarded me, thought well of me, thought well of my spouse, thought well of what I did. This is not where our joy is found. Our joy should not ever be found in our circumstances, although they delight in having our joy placed in them. Our circumstances can change, our wealth can fail, our homes burn to the ground, our family abandon us, our jobs leave us. Your circumstances can change like that. But God endures and he is causing you to endure. To what he wraps it up in verses eight and nine. Speaking of Jesus, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. We have not seen the risen Christ, but we find ourselves caught up in love for him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. We don't see him now. We don't experience him now. We're not sitting down bodily with Christ, but we believe in him. Listen to how he describes our joy. You rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If someone comes to you and they say, I want you to describe for me Describe this joy that you have. 
Like I find that bad things for you don't seem to happen at, at, at any of a different pace or with any of a, a different intensity than they do anybody else that I know. But when they encounter you, it's different. Could you describe this to me? And oftentimes you'll find that in the midst of seeking to explain and to describe this joy, words fail. Like no matter how uh, robust and, and, and vast our vocabulary, all the various words we throw at it, all these things fail. This is why Peter writes and, and God testifies that our joy is inexpressible. We're not able to fully encapsulate and codify and describe it. Words fail to do it justice. David Barron, who was one of the men interviewed in this TED Talk, described joy, and, and he found joy in chasing uh, total eclipses. And so he said, you know, I think of my own mortality a lot. His mom had recently passed. He said, I think about the passing of my mom, and I think about the passing of other friends and difficulties I go through in life. And what gives me joy in these times of melancholy is remembering the beauty of the eclipse, the enormity of the eclipse. I think of everything I'm connected to and the beauty of it, and that gives me joy. I couldn't help but be sorrowful for him, that his joy was tied in an experience that's passing, but as Christians, your joy is tied to the goodness of God. It is everlasting. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have experienced him, then you have experienced his joy. In experiencing his joy, we are equipped to endure suffering. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness, for an opportunity to worship you. God, I thank you that, that your joy is found in who you are, is given to us through Christ who died and who, and who is resurrected, living forevermore. God, I pray that, that as Christians we would not only be those who have experienced your joy, but that, God, we would be those who extend an invitation to taste and see that you are good. God, that we would be quick to extend and report of the joy that we're experiencing is solely based on the goodness of the God that has saved us and that we would share that message over and over again with our lost friends, family, and all those various people you bring across our path. And Father, we pray for those who in this hearing or in this room have not yet responded to your invitation to come and experience joy that is inexpressible. God, that they would come and know you, that they would come and be saved by you, and be saved, being saved by you, that you would give them a generous helping of your joy, a joy without end, and a hope-filled joy found solely in Jesus Christ. We submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen.